0: Language is a funny thing, right? Words are funny. Have you ever repeated a word so often it stops like sounding like a real word? Like I used to do that with world all the time, like just world, 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 world. Or one of my favorite things, oh my gosh, what is one billion to the 100th power? She better do it. This is so anticlimactic i 'm offline here it comes it 's kind of, on silent the to the 100th power
1: Tell me when, when you зов- stop hearing zero-, zero-, zero, zero and start hearing
0: zero- something Jeez, 튀- else rosie rosie rosie, ros rosie, 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 Rosie. My kids often hear Siri with that, which is really funny. Or like one of my favorite scenes in Black Sheep was when they get pulled over and they're like, "Road limit." Anyway, words are funny. They stop meaning. They, they are funny. Also, words don't always mean the same thing to different people. So let, let's take, for instance, what does "sick" mean? This is your turn to be a part of what's happening today. "Sick." What does Amanda? Your hand went up. What does "sick" mean? You. Sorry, you're in. <laughs> You're not healthy, okay, that's, a, that's one. Something, really cool. Something sick, which I've heard a lot recently, and I, I am someone who's not healthy right now, by the way. I literally did not sleep at all last night. Every time I started to doze off, I coughed. I've got this nasty head thing going on, and I don't think it's contagious, but if I cough, I'll turn around. I got a baby right in the front row. <laughs> not a good thing. So let's try another word. Um, again, participate. What comes to mind when you hear discipline? Stream of consciousness. What'd you say? Time out. out. Okay. What? Structure. Bing bang boom. Come on. Practice. Practice. The worst part of parenting. parenting. (laughs) Consistency. Consistency. Consistence. Self control. Anyone? Anyone else? Yeah. 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 Like punishment. Integrity. Goals. Abuse. Guilt. Character, fear, deterrence, success, love, I mean, dis- disciplines all over the place. And so as we continue to teach through the spiritual disciplines this week, I want to make sure we're really clear about what we mean, because who knows who comes when and what we cover when, and so we're just going to take a chance just to kind of go through a quick path of review. We're going to start by reading 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, which we looked at last summer as part of our, our kickoff of the spiritual disciplines to make sure we're on the same page. So um, I'm going to read that. I will be all over the place in, in Scripture today. So you can feel free to try to keep up in your Bibles. We'll also have uh, the text on the screens. If you use the Uversion Bible app, you can click on more, click events. We'll pop up and a, a good bit of the scriptures there, not all of it. Also, if you don't have a Bible at all, there's a Bible near you under a chair. We would love for you to take that with you. That's our gift to you. And if you need help getting oriented with it or kind of understanding how to approach it, please reach out to me, or if you came with someone, they would love to walk alongside you with that as well. So we're going to start off with 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. Listen to this. It says, if you put these things, and by the way, what Paul is saying here is he wrote this letter, these things is like everything else that I've written up to this point. Which This is a pastoral letter, so it's a a letter of instruction, how we are to live unto Christ and in Christ. So if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So a quick, quick couple of things, So, this is not what the sermon is all about, but it's foundational. First, a spiritual discipline is absolutely something that you do, right? I mean, there is an imperative in these passages. Put these things before you. Um, train in godliness. Pursue godliness. So, it is absolutely ju- something that you do so just like in earthly disciplines <laughs> earthly disciplines that bring about earthly results, if we want spiritual outcomes, we need to employ spiritual means. So therefore spiritual disciplines, right? So chances are we all want a spiritually meaningful life. Chances are in this room, you are here because there is some kind of at the very least a curiosity about what the spiritual life is, and we want a meaningful spiritual experience and daily exchange. And so again, this is really important why we've been teaching through these. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you've missed any, to kind of go back. We started last summer, and we've kind of sprinkled through them. Um, and if you need help finding them, again, let us know. We'll help you find them. But they're on our website, also our podcast. So again, if you want spiritual outcomes, you need to employ spiritual means. And so then this is important to all of us. Secondly, looking at verse 8... The, you know, we saw here it says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. The motivation of spiritual disciplines is to what? To grow in godliness. What is godliness? A life lived for God's glory, because we are created by love in his image to, to, to glorify him. So that is foundationally what we are pursuing, and we do it in his power and in his way. That's what we are seeing in godliness as a result, and this is all as a result of knowing him, and as a result of being transformed by knowing him through Jesus Christ. So again, we're pursuing godliness, and disciplines are anything, anything. We've only focused on a few. They're anything that are shown to be an effort to take appropriate measures to grow in godliness and deny our life of flesh that leads us away God from God. So again, as we've said almost every week, disciplines, they are not these things. they don't save you. they don't they don't cause you to be right before God. They also don't they're, they're not merit badges. they don't earn you any more favor with God. I love saying this as often as possible. God loves you. Because he loves you. He loves you because you are his. There is nothing you can do to increase his love for you. There's nothing you can do to decrease his love for you. It is his character and you are his. You were created for that purpose. So he loves you because he loves you. So these are not merit badges to earn more favor, better position, better inheritance, better blessing, whatever the better is. It is God gives all of himself to you in Christ. And you say, well, what if I'm not a Christ follower? What if I'm not with you in this? And I will just say, like, you know, again, these disciplines that we're talking about, they don't save you. They won't. So participating in them will not save you. Only belief and surrender to Christ will. But these postures of the disciplines surely would help you to discover the goodness of God, his love for you, and how he has worked for your redemption through Jesus. So if you're not a Christ follower and you're, you're hearing about these disciplines, maybe try and experiment and engage them, not as a means to meaning, not as a means to, to a, getting approval, but as a means of possibly entering into the love of God, entering into, into the space of relationship and maybe being wooed to him by him through his truth, love, and the work of the Holy Spirit. What a cool thing. So again, there's something for all of us. Before I go any further, we're going to pray. Um, Lord, I just surrender this time to you. I confess that I am lacking, um, both just from being under the weather, but also just in my in my humanity. God, um, Lord, you have done a wonderful work, and your your word is alive. Lord, our relationship with you is real and true. But God, I, I am I am learning and growing every day. And Lord, I pray that uh, today that I would be but a vessel for your truth to be made known, Lord, for your love for your creation to be apparent, Lord, for the, the work of Jesus Christ to be held up on high, and Lord, as a result, that we would all be moved to a life of worship, both personally, privately, as well as together, as a people called together. So I surrender this time to you, God. Again, as I pray always, speak through me or in spite of me, just whatever it is, let what you have for us Be known today in our hearts and our minds that we would be transformed. Take these words, catch them aflame by the work of your Holy Spirit in us. Transform us, change us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 22 if you have them. Um, We'll get there in a second. So today we're talking about, as Andy said, the spiritual discipline of worship. And you're like, well, gosh, how is worship How is worship a discipline? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're going to dig into that in a moment. But first, um, I want to read Matthew 22, verses 36 through 38. And in this passage, in these couple of verses, we'll see, these few verses, we'll see both kind of the definition of worship as well as kind of the, the foundational glimpse of it actually being a discipline. And so we see here uh, in this passage that Jesus is in this moment with these religious leaders, right? And so they're asking questions. They're peppering him with questions, kind of trying to catch him, strip him up. Or So some of them are probably really kind of in awe of his wisdom. <coughs> but they ask this question. They say, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus, he says, he said to them, this is, this is what is most important. He's saying this is the most important thing for all of us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The most important commandment, the thing that we are to set our lives to do, is to worship God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So first, let's, let's kind of complete that in defining worship. What would you say the key phrase in these verses are that help us understand what worship is? Again, your turn. What is the key phrase that helps us understand what worship is? What's that? Love. love love let's let's run that a few more words out. Love the Lord your God, right? That's right. So we see this, love the Lord your God. So what does that mean? You know, when we think about love the Lord your God, are we talking about love kind of in the human definition that it's about an emotional experience, an emotional gratifying experience, which is kind of what we hear and see around us all the time? If love is meaningful, to stay in love is to feel in love. And if you don't feel in love, then you're not in love, and therefore you get to get out. Like that's kind of how the world defines it. Love is so much more than just an emotional experience, with God. Think about any relationship you have. Does it is it always emotionally gratifying? It's not. But in an abiding relationship it can always be fulfilling. Love is so much more than an emotional experience. So the rest of the phrase gives us the whole picture of what loving God, what worshiping God is. It says love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What is that? What does that leave? Does it leave anything? That's everything, right? So it's this all-encompassing, overwhelming reality of our life as a response of worship to God. Love the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. I don't have a way to overcome that, both in coughing and how loud it is. Um, mm. So it is an overwhelming. So an overwhelming experience of emotion with God in all things. That's that's not what worship is limited to there certainly are moments of that there certainly are moments of that but it's not limited to that but that's often what we relegate it to if we say that worship was good today we're saying that somehow i had an emotional experience if when we think about does god love me do am i am, am i how is my walk with the Lord? We're talking, we often, our metric is often how we feel. But there is something greater. There is something deeper. So we want to acknowledge that, and we'll unpack that as we go. So, so, but, but maybe you avoid that pitfall. Maybe you understand that it's not just an emotional feeling that brings us into this loving relationship, worshiping relationship with God so maybe you avoid that pitfall in understanding worship, but but there's still one that's similar that may get that may get us. There's this scene in First, first Kings 18. Elijah is here with the prophets of Baal. There's about 450 of them, and and I won't go into all the details, but there's this showdown of whose God is real. And so Elijah's like, Hey, I'll tell you what. Get two bulls. You prepare yours. Call down your God and, you know, prepare your bull, prepare your altar, your burnt altar. And he's like, and and put them on there and then call on your God and we'll see if he catches them aflame for the offering. So they do it and and nothing's happening. And and Elijah's getting a little sarcastic. He's like, hey, maybe you should scream louder. Maybe you should, maybe, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe he's out for a walk. Maybe he's distracted. And they literally, they start screaming loud. They start cutting themselves to where there's just blood dripping on the ground and nothing happens. And then, he, and then he's like, well, just, just to give you the rest of the story, he's like, okay, so here I'm going to prepare my bull. Here's my altar. Hey, you know what, guys? Go get a ton of water and pour it on my bull and my altar. They do it. He says, you know what? Just for good measure, do it again. Pour lots of water on it so you can't mistake what happens here. And then he calls on God, and God God uh, brings his offering to flame. Now, the point of this story is how the prophets of Baal we're acting and how many of us think this is how we have to approach God, with our fervor of worship, that our job in worship is to have a passionate enough, expressive enough offering that God would respond. We, we think that that's what we're doing, so we come in and we, and we really try to show our sincerity. We really, we really try to work up some kind of response, hoping that God would notice hoping that, again, that somehow this would trigger God's love and favor on us. We often come to God like the prophets of Baal, thinking that if we just do more, we think that if our acts, done, our acts of love done rightly and often enough will make God love and accept us. We have to remember what 1 John 4.19 says. It says this, We love because why? Because he first loved us. You have to understand, God is always, always the pursuer. He always has been. He always will be. He's always the pursuer. He's always made the first move. We see pictures of this through all of this redemptive story that we have in Scripture. From the very beginning to now, we see that God has always been the loving pursuer. Just a couple of more recent examples in scriptural speaking. you know, We see the shepherd who leaves the flock to go gather up the one wandering sheep. He leaves the 99 to rescue the one. He pursued. He didn't say, hey, come back, come back. You're wondering, he went and gathered up and put that sheep on his shoulders. Or we see it in the the father of the prodigal son, the son that said, you are dead to me. I want all that you have for me now, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to live the way I want to live. Went through, lost it all, came back contrite and broken. And while the father saw him a long way off, what did he do? He didn't chastise him. He didn't say, shut the doors. This guy's dead to me. He broke out in a sprint. And ran to his son and fell on his neck and held him and said, You were gone, but now you're here. He's the pursuer. He always is and always will be. And again, so so maybe you're not sure about scripture. Maybe again, if you're not a Christ follower, you're like, okay, well, these things are nice stories, but they don't really don't hold, don't hold credence for you. Well, maybe you look to creation for meaning or for, for where the purpose is or or kind of where you um, kind of gain your comfort. Creation itself, God created it like he did to sustain you, to give you pleasure. And as in Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, that creation even shows his pursuing love to you to the extent that you cannot deny his existence. He's the pursuer. Even in your unbelief, he is pursuing you by the world around you by the warm sun rays that hit your arm and warm you, by the breeze that refreshes you, by the ease in which we have to get around, by by the dew of the morning. We see his pursuing love to turn your hearts to him. Even creation itself is a first move by God. How cool is that? So yes, worship is loving God, But it is not so that he would love us. It is a response to his love to you, his pursuing, initiating, unconditional love to you. Richard Foster said, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. Worship is a response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. And this word worship that we read over and over again comes from this word that is worth-ship, which means to ascribe worth to, to ascribe right worth to, a worth from knowing. So when we say we worship God, we are ascribing worth to God. Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So we have to see this. Our worship is birthed out of a right understanding of who God is and how he is, but it doesn't stop there, as well as who we are and how we are, and then rightly showing worth with all that we are and all that we do. That's worship. And so it's knowing God, knowing you, and then responding rightly, a holy God. A God that is unconditionally loving and always true, never forsaking, never leaving, never slumbering. And us who are fickle and wavering and denying and rebelling and thinking we are better. The created saying, I am over the creator. That's what worship is birthed out of. So how does Matthew 22:36 36 through 38 show it to be a discipline? I mean, just simply, it says, you shall, you shall love the Lord your God. So it's this imperative, you shall. Worship is something you choose to do. And and, and pursuing godliness, is part of it is surrendering and pursuing what God has given us to be and do, the commands of God, what reflects his character as well as achieves his purpose in this world. That is. Is an act of worship. And so worship is something you choose to do. So what is the spiritual discipline of worship? The spiritual discipline of worship. And 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 again, we kind of I kind of alluded to this earlier. When I I hear it kind of put in these terms, for some reason it seems to, to kind of devalue worship as a loving response to God, to say that it's a discipline. I often kind of feel this recoil of somehow I'm going to kind of strangle the life out of it by setting myself to worship God if it is a response of love. Doesn't it being a discipline somehow still the purity of the offering, the love offering? So let me illustrate it this way. If, if I bring flowers home to Amber on this upcoming random Tuesday, which she's not in here, and I'm going to do, so don't tell her. Um, But if I do, if I do that, and they're beautiful flowers, and it's really, with Amber, everything is about thoughtfulness anyway, so she really wouldn't care how beautiful they were, just the fact that I brought flowers home, and I give them to her, and she is obviously touched, and she was like, why? And Amber does love to know why. So she will ask, why did you bring me these flowers? Like, imagine if my response is just something like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. It's just my duty as a husband. Like, (laughs) where's her affection going to go? She's going to be like, whoa, 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 not safe, get away. Like, it would just totally diminish all that was there for a second. This, This act of duty shows no honor to Amber. Because even though it is something that a loving husband would do, if I do it out of just pure duty, what it says is it actually belittles her worth because it says she's not worthy of my spontaneous, invigorated affection for her because of who she is, because she is mine. you think about this, even if Amber and I are not in a season of deep connectedness, which happens, by the way, my devotion to her leads me to still show these acts of love and adoration because my love for her is based on, again, who she is as, as God has made her to be my wife. Not how I feel about her. because Guess what? How I feel about her is often not her fault, just so you know. It's mostly my fault. Typically, I get some kind of selfish streak. And it just overtakes, and, and she experiences the brunt of it. But guess what she always is? She is always my beloved. And guess what I always am? And I am always hers. And so devotion takes discipline from being duty and actually makes it a loving response because I am devoted to her. I am devoted to honor and cherish her. I'm devoted to, to build her up. I'm devoted to see her flourish. So likewise, our discipline of worship is kept from being a duty because of our devotion to God through Jesus Christ. And do you hear that? It is through Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us into the place of having this opportunity to have this real act of love, devotion to God, regardless of what's happening in my life, regardless of what I feel like. Because guess what? I am my beloved's and he is mine. Always. How comforting. And when it comes from a place of this devotion, then it really does, in season and out, I have this opportunity to bring a loving offering of worship unto God. Hebrews 13:15 t- shows us this. It says, through him, that's Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So when we think about this, through him, what, what greater thing would move you to worship God than what Jesus has done? Because of Jesus, what are you? <coughs> Excuse me. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you are accepted. Because of Jesus, you are whole. Because of Jesus, you are redeemed. Because of Jesus, you are made new. Because of Jesus, you are... Who, who were an outcast, are adopted as a son and daughter, made an heir in a holy family. They're made worshipers of God. Through the work of Christ, you are made a worshiper of God because you are given a new name, a new identity, a new purpose. Your reason for existing is restored. You are connected back to why you were created in his image, to glorify him, to experience a loving relationship with him. For all of us, for all of us, if we say we are worshipers of God, it started with Jesus. He is the one who introduces you and me and gives us fellowship with him. So because, a worship, because our worship is a matter of loving response to God's pursuing love, our devotion keeps our discipline of worship from being a duty. So now that we've cleared that up, we're going to try to move pretty quickly through what is the definition of of the spiritual discipline of worship. How does it affect your life? What fruit does it bring? And then how can we go deeper into this life of worship? So here's my best attempt at a definition. And none of my definitions, if you've been here for any other weeks, are short. This is, we're we're staying consistent because they try to encompass everything and you can unpack it. So here we go. Spiritual discipline of worship is an inward Outward and corporate discipline of engagement where we set our heart's affection and our mind's attention intentionally on the person and character of God and rightfully respond as we are in private, family, and corporate settings. Wonderful. So just to be clear... We've, we've categorized the disciplines as we've gone, and I, again, trying not to redo everything every week. But outward are the the, um, the disciplines that we pursue that are mainly about <coughs> sorry inward are the disciplines we pursue that are mainly about internal attitude change. Outward are the disciplines we pursue that are that are about external behavioral change, taking on the expressed life of Christ in the corporate. Um, The corporate disciplines are those that we engage together. And now hear this, all of these disciplines are participated in individually. We each get to pursue these, but we also see um, an an impact uh, beyond ourselves. And then the main change that happens in all of these is that our heart is changed, just as Andy said earlier. It's about our heart being transformed, us being transformed from the inside out. And engagement is something that we actively engage and step into. Okay, so today we're going to be focusing mainly for the next few minutes on the corporate aspect of this discipline of worship. Why? Because, uh, why are we doing that? Because as we've been looking at all the other spiritual disciplines, we've been focusing really on inward and outward aspects of what worship is. Again, if worship is a response to a loving God, a loving response to a loving God, all of these things that we've been calling each other to and that he calls us to and invites us into are offerings of worship. It is part of building in and pouring into and investing into my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So just for example, you know, (coughs) excuse me, um, what... uh, so if you think about what devotion and love is, it's doing what honors and shows worth to the other. So we talked about praying. When we pray, we acknowledge that God is the sovereign king, our good heavenly father, and our eternal provider. We're confessing our dependency on him and our need for him and our desire for fellowship. When we study the word of God, we show we value knowing God and desiring his will for our lives. Again, his word, is, 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 is his char- the expression of his character, is also a means of relationship, And then also because we tend, and then the other reason that we want to focus on the corporate aspect is because we tend towards isolationism. We, I think in our, just as we are as humans, and then really even our culture has only exasperated this, we're individualists. We are. We we are. We, we, We trust ourselves more than anyone. Even if we're insecure, we're insecure because we trust ourselves more than anyone. It's funny that way. But that's the reality. We're individualists, so we need to push against this tendency today. So that's why we're going to focus mainly on the corporate aspect, the together aspect of this discipline of worship. Last week, we talked about the spiritual discipline of fellowship, right? So as we looked at that last week, we saw that the church is most identified, the most accurate and full identification of the church is that of a family. We are, we are expressed as a family, and, and God's intent is always that his, his work in the world would be delivered, carried out, lived out by some kind of family expression. If you recall, we talked about when Adam and Eve were created. Adam was created. He was created and all was good. Everything was perfect still. He, was in, he, was walking, he had f- complete fellowship with God. He had a beautiful place. And God looked at him and said, it's not good for you to be alone. And he created Eve. He created someone to share life with, and to have this family expression with. And it was through them that they were his. The mandate was given to go, be fruitful, and multiply. My image across the face of the earth that I would be glorified over all creation through this first family. And then we see over and over again Abraham and his family. We see it through. We see it through families that over and over again God's redemptive work is meant to be delivered to the world. So the church is always to be identified as a people, never as an individual. It's always plural. We are always a people. And if you want to really see us become a a people that sees this world impacted by the love and truth and gospel of Jesus Christ, it happens as a family because the world gets a better glimpse of God's love, that it's relational, gets a better picture of who Jesus is because none of us are fully Jesus. Only Jesus is fully Jesus, but in, in one's strengths complements the other's weakness. And so on. So we talked about that. We talked about that a lot last week. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry. It is this deep family connectedness that allows us to best experience the love and grace of God in the gospel of Jesus, as well as to take it to the world around us. So go back and listen to last week's sermon if you haven't. It would be helpful. Um, our worship is no different. A large part of our worship should be together. There's there's mystery to how and why God has worked this to be this way, but because we are never meant to exist as just an individual, it is vital that our worship has a connectedness to one another. That's why we're compelled. You know, and just a quick caveat. There are times and places where you are forced to be an individual, and you will experience what is always true is that God's grace is sufficient. He is the all-satisfying one. He will sustain you. You will have rich fellowship and relationship. Every need for relationship we have can only ultimately be satisfied in the relationship that we've been given with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so there will be seasons and times, whether it be that you're a missionary, and you'll hear from Kelsey a little bit, she's in Berlin. It's a hard, hard place to be a Christ follower. Very lonely, often. And so you might find yourself in situations like that, but the norm, the given reality, is that we are a people called together. That's why this word parakaleo is always used to describe the church. It's this called togetherness. We are called together. And so it's a mystery of why and how God worked it this way, but the community that we have been given and it's not just with us, with all the churches that are in Christ. is a gift as well as a grace to us as well as the world. That's why we're compelled with such verses as Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So don't neglect. And, and the context here, meeting together, it... If you look at the context and the time, it is impossible to assume that they're just talking about anything other than this purposeful coming together to worship the living God. It is, it is here. So not neglecting me together. It is that we would gather in our, 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 our expressions of togetherness. And again, not always. We have, next week, we're talking about the discipline of celebration. And that is literally the enjoyment of life. How fun is that? And it's meant to be done together. So that's coming. So again, it's not just that we're always singing and teaching and praying, but that is a huge part of, of our gathered. Acts 2, 42 and 43, this is one of our anchor shaping uh, passages. And they devoted themselves. Again, that word devoted, giving fully to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. I mean, does that describe worship? It does. And all came upon every soul. You you want something meaningful? I mean, all coming upon every soul, that's pretty meaningful. And, me, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Colossians 3, 14 through 17. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What beautiful pictures of gathered worship. We are compelled to do so. So you want rich, deep relationship in your life? You want rich, deep relationship in your community, your church community? Share a life of worship. Guess what? Together, how powerful would this be? Together, we're humbled before a holy God. And together, that we revel at his love and majesty. (coughs) We'll find our unity in the person and work of Jesus, and that unity will enliven our offering unto God. And again, this will stir up our collective affection for God. It will stir up our collective affection for prayer, for his word, for his work. That is the result. It's the fruit. And, and make no mistake, the word of God must be part of each of our lives as well as our fellowship together if we want to live this life of worship, this pursuing this discipline of worship. If our worship is a response to who God is, as we are, his word, which is our primary way of knowing him and understanding ourselves through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, will usher us into this transforming worship we desire. So we cannot neglect the word. That's why every Sunday we come to the word. That's why in our groups we make sure to make space for us. That's why we encourage each other to spend time in the word in your daily lives together and, and by yourself. The word must be a part of our worship and our lives if we want to truly experience meaningful God-honoring worship. So the fruit of the discipline of worship... We've talked about how these disciplines guide us. They, again, they don't save us, they don't earn our favor, but they do guide us. They guide us into deep, deeper intimacy with God. They guide us into experiencing a greater liberation from the burden of sin. And they guide us to growing in our Christ-likeness. We've talked about that. So really quickly, we want to see how this discipline of worship works as this guide in these things. So first, the deeper intimacy with God. Intimacy is what? It's a sense of nearness, a sense of closeness. And so when we're talking about intimacy with God, we're saying nearness and closeness with the living God, creator God, holy God, our heavenly Father. The only way that we draw near to a holy God is by being holy and being righteous. And guess what? In ourselves, none of us are. None of us. No one is righteous. No, not one our righteousness, our holiness will never get us there. It is only by what? By the completed work of Jesus Christ that he came, he he denied his claim to the throne and he came and took on flesh. He humbled himself and lived with the limitations of humanity but did it without sin. And he continued to humble himself by doing what? By taking on death and death on the cross. And in that death, he took our punishment of the death that we deserve from our sin. He also took the power of sin. It is, sin is defeated. Death is defeated. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we see it is only by the completed work of Christ. When, when he did that, he didn't just take those things. He also gave us something. What did he give us? He gave us his righteousness. He gave us his right standing before god and so now when god sees us he no longer sees the rebel he no longer sees the sinner he sees the holiness the righteousness of his son as if there was never sin so you want intimacy with god worshiping him will only grow your intimacy with him because over and over again we see what happens when mankind tries to approach god by their righteousness god grants them what they want and all they find is the wrath and judgment That God wants to rescue them from. But when man is humbled, when we are humble, mankind is humbled and we surrender and we confess, we find ourselves worshiping God through Jesus. We are coming before him just as he is in all of his glory, holiness, majesty, love, compassion, justice, and mercy. We're coming before him just as we are, who were only good because of Jesus and all of our what what was rebellion, insecurity, fear, shame, sinfulness, and pride but yet we are whole and we are his. When we do that, we ascribe worth to God, we worship him, we find that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but we are also more loved than we could ever fathom because our righteousness on the best day is filthy rags, but we have Jesus's. So we can draw near to God because of Jesus and we can live. The more we live in the proximity, the proximity of that act of worship, We will actually experience the nearness that we've been given in Jesus. And it's not that God's holding back. He's given it all, but we are being transformed and experiencing it deeper and deeper. What greater intimacy comes from a loving, gracious God welcoming us in through our trusting his work of grace in Jesus. Okay, so he also guides us to a greater experience of our liberation from the burden of sin. Catch this, the more we worship God, truly worship him as we've been talking about, we will find that we are more loved by God, probably what we just talked about, seeing that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, more loved than we could ever fathom. So in our worship of God, we come to grips with the extent of our need for grace because of our sin that the work of, of um because of our sin, and that the work of Jesus has done is actually complete. Again, I'm, I'm glad I'm a broken record on this because we all forget this way too often. Because it's complete, we are liberated from sin, from the power and punishment of sin. So as we spend time before the throne of God, and, I mean, just for a moment, like, know that his love and his grace is just spilling all over you, is lavishing on you. And what have you done to deserve that? Not one thing. And so if you want freedom from this burden of sin, it is is living into the reality that it is on you no more through Jesus Christ. So as we spend time before God, we will be reminded of that. We will see the completeness of who God is and his love for you. And he says, if you love me, obey my commandments. God's commandments, they both express his very character, as we said earlier, as well as leading us to the life that honors him and promotes our own flourishing because in his commands, we actually experience what we were created for. So again, like a growing love for God actually increases your capacity to live out your purpose that God has given you in his will and his ways. Talk about liberation from the burden of sin. You are actually more capable to respond with obedience. We will always sin. We will always stumble. We will always find our flesh to win at times. But it will never be victorious, and it will never be our identity ever again in Christ. And we will find ourselves growing our capacity to live in victory more and more and more until the day of Christ Jesus. So lastly, it guides to becoming more like Christ. Worship guides us to become more like Christ. Jesus glorifies and loves the Father. We are joining in with the very purpose of Jesus when we worship our creator God in all things. The beginning of John 14, 31 says, but I do as the Father has commanded me, that's Jesus, so that the world may know that I love the Father. We're joining in with Jesus. What can be more like Christ than doing what he exists for? Our worship of God binds us to the very cause of Christ, to see his will and worth made known to all the earth. And in doing that, the world would know his name. And in doing that, the world would know surrender and redemption and hope and life in Jesus Christ. So the discipline of worship is both a gift and a grace, but it is also to be cultivated. And how do we do that? I'm going to close with this. And these, um, these kind of these steps of how we cultivate the discipline of worship are adapted. They're adapted from uh, Richard Foster's Celebration and Discipline, kind of one of the seminal books on this that I would highly recommend. It's actually one of our first five recommendations if you're new to faith. It's our number three. Okay? Number four. All right. <laughs> but Yes. Uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. So how to, how to cultivate the discipline of worship. So the first is just, it was great about be a person of the word. Dig in daily, share the journey with others. Again, if it's awkward, ask for help, keep doing it. Again, relationships grow less awkward over time. So continue in the word. Secondly, practice the presence of God daily. This is, the both, this is both in the midst of any moment by recognizing what there is to be grateful for and giving God credit and praise. So again, just growing in the discipline of just stopping and thinking like, man, how is God good in this moment? What has he done in this moment that I have to praise him for? And, and seeing that every good and perfect gift is from above, and in the midst of your trials and in the midst of your terrors, God's grace is sufficient to sustain you, and God's grace is sufficient to use everything that is of violence in your life For your good, for His glory. So, it's also in personal set aside time. So, it's not only just in cultivating this way of seeing life, but in seeing God. But it's also that you personally set time aside as a discipline, as we've already talked about through prayer and study and fasting. That's all part of this. You cannot hope to have a meaningful gathered time together, which is so important, if you are not personally pursuing. This meaningful time with the Lord. Okay, moving on. Worship. You also need to worship in different spaces and places, not just by yourself and not only with others, not just in your closet or like that little intimate space or only with larger congregations, not just in a small group or on Sundays, not always in the same format and function. But again, vary. Like And again, realize anytime you are gathered together with anyone else in the body of Christ, you have an an opportunity to collectively offer up a loving offering and worship to God. So vary it. Open your view of like all the opportunity there is, and, and enjoy the gift of each other. Okay, prepare yourself for times of gathered worship, and I and I want to emphasize this one. Like, you know, we, we do this every week, and and most of you come at least once a month, right? And so, like, that's that's like the you, so we do this fairly often. <coughs> we don't want to come in cold, like. We really have a great opportunity here. And so we want to gather with anticipation, with urgency, with expectancy. We're coming in, and this is often kind of an afterthought to the rest of our week, a little bit of a reprieve, a little bit of my time maybe, a little bit of duty. Like start, I mean, the whole week reflecting on what happened the last time we gathered together, praying for what's coming, and then let it really kind of escalate to Saturday night, Sunday morning, and really kind of aligning your heart, humbling yourself, being prayerful and being expectant that we do this for a reason, God has a purpose for his gathering, <coughs> that it would deepen our relationship and our life, and it would uh, deepen our, our um, gospel impact in this world. So come in ready. Be, prepare yourself for gathered worship, whether it's on Sundays or any other time. Know that gathered worship is never about you. Surrender your agenda. I saw this funny meme this week. and It said, random churchgoer, I didn't like worship today. And then it said, "Francis Chan, good because we weren't worshiping you." You know, I thought that was pretty funny. Your, your concern of whether or not you will hear a word from God today or not, or whether you will like this or that, or whether or not you will be stirred up—that's really not your concern. The language of gathered worship is not "I," it's "we." Pray that God's life rises up in the group, not just within you, but if it's the group and that's His will, if it's someone else and that's His will. <coughs> I'm so sorry. <coughs> Be satisfied in that. Again, it's a we. We are coming together. Cultivate holy dependency. Um, I think I jumped a couple things, but that's okay. We're getting the point. Cultivate cultivate holy dependency. Confess and know that you are utterly dependent on God for anything significant um, to happen. The work is God's, not yours. Not mine. Not Andy's. Not anyone else. We are hopeless without his work, without his hands, without his intervening. Here's a fun one for us because this is something we've embraced. Absorb distractions with gratitude. God is God. He is big. He is present. He does not need pristine environments for him to be good. I I was getting ready for this worship service one time, and the pastor leading the service, we were all standing in a circle, and he he looked at all of us and he said, I need you to be perfect today. If you're not perfect, you could call someone else in this room to miss God. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then I had to go lead worship after that. It was amazing. Um, Thankfully, God's grace is even bigger than that guy. But that's insane to think. Like, how in the world, if Hitler could not overcome God's redemptive work in this world, how are we in some little minute kind of thing in this going to mess up what God has a plan for us? Like, we embrace distraction. Embrace distraction and actually allow it for God to use it to turn you grateful. A great example for us is kids. We often have kids in this space. They will it is not uncommon to see a kid just flash by, maybe a little blonde headed kid, maybe with a last name uh, starts with an S T E P H E N S. We love that kid because he has just, just like unbridled joy all the time. But it just there he goes. And like if that like there are some people that will just like I gotta go. Like this is this is not of the Lord. This is not honoring God. There is no reverence here. And like we believe that the sound of kids is the sound of the family of God. And so it makes us more complete to hear that. So we are grateful for what we've been given when we hear that. So that is just a great example. So absorb distractions with gratitude. Um, And then lastly, learn to offer a sacrifice of worship. And if there is anything I think we have an opportunity to step into it's kind of a kind of a, a common cultural marker, I say with a lot of love and humility and personal confession too. Um, this one's for us. You will not often feel like being here in, in the other things that represent this space. This in those moments, because this is based in identity, because it is it is again part of this life of worship. Um, we we need to grow in our expressing a sacrifice of worship. Now again, just to be really clear. We don't expect anyone to be here every week. I am purposeful not to be here every week. I take a minimum of twelve Sundays off a year. I counted this year. I'm at twenty, and I'm not. I am here for a lot of those, but I but I don't teach twenty Sundays a year. I'm I am not here at least six Sundays a year, um, because as part of me being healthy, is also the reality is that. My my worship is not contained to this time. My family and I, we, we, we love to have worship at our house some of those mornings. We love to be out somewhere else and have worship together. We still worship. We still have a family worship, um, but it's not always here. So again, by no means do we say if you miss, if you only get 51 Sunday person, that you are not loving the Lord. But we are saying we do need to grow in our offering of a sacrifice of worship. Richard Foster said this, he says, but you need to go... When he said, we don't feel like, kind of responding to, we don't feel like going. This is, I really am closing. I know I've kind of alluded to that. This is it. And I'm really long today. This might be a record. But you need to go anyway. You need to offer a sacrifice of worship. You need to be with the people of God and say, these are my people. As stiff necked and hard hearted and sinful as we may be, together are, I think I mistyped my quote. Together, we're going to come before God. That was the gist of it. So we, we, we have this opportunity because we are a people. Isaac Pennington said it well when he was speaking uh, the pe- to the people of God are gathered. He says, they are like a heap of fresh burning coals, warming one another as a great strength and freshness and vigor of life flows into all. So there is a gift to us gathering. It's a gift unto God as well as to each other. So prayerfully, with much grace and open hands, let us, let us pursue this life of worship, both individually uh, as well as collectively, and for us to understand the value of the body of Christ in doing that all for God's glory, all through Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and we'll go into communion. <coughs> God, I thank you, Lord, for your love for us. I thank you that you are the pursuing God, the creator of all things, the holy God, majestic above all. Lord, as high as our minds and our thoughts can, can strive, Lord, you exceed those lofty thoughts. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. Lord, that you as that God pursues us. Lord, the created, the rebeller, the sinful, the outcast. And so, Lord, I thank you for your persistent love. I pray that our life would be an ever-growing expression of a returning and responding to that love in this life of worship. In Jesus' name.